Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is Dr. Kayla Franz-Lubers. She's a 2016 graduate from Palmer, and she practices in Middleton, Wisconsin. Additionally, she has her CACCP through the ICPA, which is her certificate from the Academy Council of Chiropractic Pediatrics from the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association. As of late, she, along with Brittany Cedar, have been doing a lot of teaching with GMI on the topic of chiropractic pediatrics. So without any further ado, Dr. Kayla Franz-Lubers. Hello, Dr. Franz Lutheris. Thank you for joining us today. Nice to finally be on and get to meet your face. Actually, I've listened to all your podcasts and I just love what you're doing for the Gonsta community. Thank you. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and how you got into Gonsta chiropractic? Sure. I always utilized chiropractic. Um, I started in junior high, but it was mainly just for pain management as an athlete. And then through shadowing, I, um, I learned a little bit about Gonstead, went to chiropractic college, and I received my first chiropractic, Gonstead chiropractic adjustment um, after having a not so great uh, adjustment in the student clinic. Um, Dr. Josh Lawler from the intern program, I saw him at 530 in the morning for my new patient, and that was my first Gonstead um, adjustment. And I never looked back after that, and it's truly changed my life. I couldn't see myself doing any other um, technique within chiropractic because it just it gives you an amazing analysis within it. You get so much certainty on what to fix throughout the system if you're utilizing it and analyzing it and looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's what attracts a lot of people is um, you don't think about it on the front end, but becoming a doctor to then sit with a patient in front of you and be like, gee, I have no idea what's going on is a horrible, horrible feeling. <laughs> and so when you it, can have the opposite feeling, it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, the system, you can learn so much about a patient's problem from the, the case history to their, you know, from their symptomatology, to visualization, static emotion, palpation, x-ray, your scope, like all of that. Oh my gosh, the amount of information you can gain from that. By the end of that new patient appointment, you should be, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure what I'm going to be working on. That's that's the beauty of this system. It really is. Yeah. So speaking of that, let's just dive into this topic because we've got a lot that we can cover if, if we choose to. So right. I was actually already thinking, let's start, let's start with infants because I do think that especially for younger doctors, newer doctors, even sometimes for me, you see an infant. And you kind of go, Ooh, I mean, it just makes your heart beat a little bit faster. You're like, this is a fragile little human being who can have some weird problems and I want to help them and not hurt them. And so let's start with infants because I think they are a little bit more of a challenge. So how would you start with an infant being brought in or, or some major considerations? So depending on what's going on um, with them, you're going to have some considerations. Like, so is mom on the phone? Like, do I need to do a case history with them on the phone first? With it, because with infants, people need to realize during their evaluation, you only have a small window of time with them. You know, with an adult, you can extend that out, like you're more cooperative with it. But an infant, you want to schedule them not during the time when it's supposed, they're supposed to be napping or their feeding time. Like, be considerate of like what that child's time is. Like, when is the best time for them? When are they awake? When will they be happy? Those type of things with it. Um, 
the the case history i'm going to start with their preconception what you know did they have a hard time conceiving what was their pregnancy like um i'll ask pointed or depending on um what a child comes in with i'll ask pointed questions within that case history to know what mom experienced did she have a c-section did she have a lot of hip pain or rib pain throughout it um did she always feel like baby was super low um all of those things can indicate, you know, or pubic bone pain. That is like, if you are adjusting a mom throughout her pregnancy and she complains so much of pubic bone pain that does not resolve, baby, you need to really check an ASOC to put on them or upper cervical because they, they're, they're, they could be a brow presentation in birth. So essentially their forehead is stuck on the pubic bone within it. So knowing you know, really digging deep into their their pregnancy, their delivery, birth, all all of that can give you so much information, which will give you confidence in what you're going to evaluate on a child. So once I take the case history, then I'm going to start my evaluation with it. And that's visualization. If you don't think you can get a ton of information from visually looking at a child, I encourage you to like print off a, a front and back of an infant on your exam and go from head to toe and evaluate them just on visualization. So do they have a flat spot on their cranium? Are their eyes symmetrical? Is their face side to side symmetrical? Are their ears? What's the clavicle and the shoulder? Are there rolls? Oh my gosh, Roll, like baby rolls. Everyone's like, oh, so cute. They can tell you so much information. They should be symmetrical on the same side. So if they're not, that should give you an indication. Hey, is there an ilium misalignment? What's their upper thoracic doing? Is there a neck issue with them? Um, the nipple line for a child, like those should be symmetrical with it. Um, are they super tight and flexed? Are they very extended? Or do they look like they're in distress um, when you squeeze their their buttocks together? Does the cleft go straight up or does it deviate from side to side with it? Um, if you hold baby up by their trunk, what are their legs doing? Is there internal rotation, external rotation? Do they like to keep one always held up versus dangling and relaxed with them? Do they have a bald spot? Um, all of those things, you can look at it from a chiropractic lens and look back to your gait analysis of an adult and, you know, internal rotation, external rotation with it. What would that ilium do if it's an AS or a PI, an occiput, you know, ASPS, all of those visualization cues as an adult, when you look at the visualization of a child, an infant will give those things away. You just have to think biomechanically about it, but also you're you're giving little indications on it now if a baby has not like crawled or walked yet um you can do a sacral pump with it so when you can put baby up nestle like they should nestle right into kind of your neck and they should basically be a ball of mush like what like they don't have a lot of tone but they should just kind of snuggle right up into your your chest into your neck area you are going to pump with like your first couple fingers. You're just going to pump that sacrum. If they're rearing back, that means there's a lot of tension in their spine. It doesn't mean adjust sacrum or anything like that. You're literally assessing, is there a tone issue within their spine? Because that, that to me is like, okay, we have a tone issue. 
there's there's some disturbance within their their spine so now we can move to instrumentation on it also another another clinical pearl i guess if you have a child who's really clingy and doesn't like doesn't like you per se um you can put their blanket over your shoulder because then they won't smell you they'll smell their blanket they'll be more comfortable that way um or even on on your pelvic bench or wherever you're assessing them lay two factor it'll smell like them but then if they're spit up or other things <laughs> your tables are protected <laughs> um within that so it's there's so much you can get from the analysis and that should give that should give young doctors especially or, or people who aren't super in the pediatrics that should give you some confidence into you know, what am I finding? And then you're going to go with your scope and palpation. Remember, infants especially don't have the layers of stress and trauma on on their spine. So when you see, you know, pimples or, or breakouts on their skin or petechiae, you know, tight bands of muscles, you're like, hello, this is the area that I should be, I should be focusing on. And typically when you scope, those areas will will be indicated within it so you're you're already starting to check off boxes okay this is starting to make sense i like this area is becoming more prominent within it and by the end of your analysis you should you know have a couple areas and then with adjusting considerations then you look at you know what did my workup say which system do i need to be in less is more so finding the major is a big thing if you're I, I'm always very hesitant when I hear doctors like, oh, you know, I just adjusted them full spine on an infant. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what an overload for that that child's mm-hmm. nervous system within it. You know, that's the beauty of also the Gonstead technique is that we really we look at the neurology and the impact that we're going to have on the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system as well. So I think being very meticulous within your exam is going to really give you so much information and give you a lot of good clinical indications of where you need to be for adjusting. Yeah. And when you're, uh, when you've got a newborn like that, they haven't walked yet. And so they don't need full spine because they probably, they don't really, their thoracics aren't usually involved unless there's direct trauma, in which case you'll know those if those happen. Most of the time it's up high or down low. And it's usually the result of the actual birth trauma or, or even just the process. I don't even call it trauma the process itself is traumatic. So just the process right. itself. Um, and so let me have you talk about that a little bit about the normal process and what that looks like as far as um, how the birthing process actually helps to prime the baby for health. Yeah. So there's, you know, my biggest thing is I always want to assure mom, your, your body's intelligent. Baby will come when baby is ready. And it is a dynamic process within it. It is not linear. It is not like for the first two hours, we're going to be at this stage of later. And then for these couple hours, we're going to be like, your body's intelligent, go with the flow, realize, you know, and have some good, you know, mindset within that. So I'll ask mom, I I love having mom and dad in for baby's new patient. The reason why is because you will ask them about birth and delivery or their labor you will think that they witnessed two different births of a child because mom's in her own world and obviously her body, she's experiencing it from a different level. 
but dad would be like, well, that is not how that happened, like type of thing. But with dad or, or whoever their birth support provider is, I'll ask, you know, were they, did your, your provider have hands on baby's head after crowning or, um, a big red flag for like an upper thoracic potential issue in a child would be, Hey, were you told, Oh my gosh, don't push, don't push doctors not here yet. And then they put upward compressive force on baby's head because they're already crowning and they're not ready. They're going to buckle at that upper um, thoracic area on them. So like, that's like, I make special note of that, you know, but if, um, so in the normal birth process, you have the cranium, the, they will come together to make the head a little smaller to get through the birth canal. But when baby crowns, you'll have what's called cranial blowout. So the cranial bones will actually separate and then come back together. When that happens, you have cortisol released in baby's body. This is what we need because that cortisol allows the lungs to expel out all of the fluid that they need to allow the lungs to actually expand really well. So when you have C-section um, children or even a lot of intervention where they don't have that cranial blowout and they don't have that cortisol release, these children are more likely to have asthma or breathing-related issues because they didn't have that when they, when they were born. Within it, you know, Same with the, the microflora. Um, through the, the birth canal, that's baby's colonization of their body, not only externally, but internally as well. So um, prepping mom and dad to know that, hey, having a vaginal delivery is really great because that, um, I want to say within, within the first couple hours, baby's body is actually colonized, their microbiome is starting to develop within that. So if someone's um, had a C-section, Within it, you know, having good probiotics, though, like to help build up their immune system, will be good and start to colonize them is a really important, you know, factor within that. You can have, um, depending on how crunchy your your moms um, are willing to be, some will be like that's that's not an option. We'll do some probiotics um, with it. You can swab some of the, the vaginal flora and put it on the nipple and have baby um, nurse through breastfeeding and they will get colonized that way. You can make it into a tincture and, and drop it in like a bottle with them. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do with that midwife doulas, like all of, all of them, you know, back in the day. Um, have those things with it. So the more you can get back to natural birthing, and I know that's that's kind of a weird word. Like natural birthing is, we're like, well, natural is natural. But there's, you know, back in the day, we had a lot of home births. Um, I will say Ayana May's Guide to Childbirth, amazing book to have your patients read. I think the first 120 some pages is just birth stories with it. So if you have a first time mom, have, have them read it. It's so empowering for them, um, gives them wide variety within it. You can have it as a doctor and, you know, print off stories or this or that. And it's, it's a great way for them to start their way into life kind of on that right foot. But 
you want to know was their rotation was there an aggressive turning of of the head during the birthing process what was their apgar score at one minute and five minutes um what was their nursing like those are all important things like during the hospital time like that's important to evaluate but i also want to know mom's recovery with it and the reason why i want to know mom's recovery is because i want to know what's her nutritional status within that is she really depleted that you need to well you should be staying on your your prenatals through breastfeeding within it because it's just it's a way to children making a human takes up a lot of nutrients from mom so we want to make sure that she's being replenished but then they're also getting enough nutrients as well through the breast milk within it and I know a lot of moms even you know they want they neglect themselves like baby needs attention this and that and the other so maybe they don't get the nutrition you need to pause you need to say hey you need to take some time for yourself and you need to make sure you get good nutrition because what you eat baby eats through breast milk. And most of that time when that happens, moms will start eating a lot better and baby will be doing better within all of that. So it's not it's not black and white. It's all shades of gray. Everything's very interconnected. So you're you're kind of their guide throughout. Yeah, you're working on baby, but mom tells you a ton of information as well within it. Yeah, you mentioned that you go all the way back to uh, preconception with really trying to figure these things out. And so it makes me wonder, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it feels like this to me that it seems like more and more people are having trouble getting pregnant in the first place. Uh, in vitro fertilization is becoming more and more common and more popular. Um, why, why do you think that that's become more of a problem? And the question I get a lot from students is, um, what realistic expectations can we set for being able to help people with those options, with those problems using chiropractic? So I'll address the last part first with students. You never guarantee anything. <laughs> that's, right. that's for sure. Like that's across the board. The best way to be honest is to be honest with patients first and foremost. But what you should tell, you should teach them about subluxation and saying by removing interference, removing the subluxation, it allows your body to heal and to do what it's supposed to do optimally. So by removing that subluxation, could that help you get pregnant? Maybe. I don't know. But it's also one of those things where it's like, what do you have to lose? You know, um, I know a lot of people are like, but I don't want to spend money on preconception. So I'm, I'm a realist when it comes to my patients. So I will say, how much did you spend? How much did you spend on your wedding? And they will give me a number. And I said, how long did it take for you to plan your wedding? Most people probably say anywhere between six and 12 months. And I was like, okay, that was a party for one day. You are going to create a human being for the rest of your life. You don't think that takes some time and some investment within it. And people don't think about that because they just think it's supposed to be so simple. And it, I think back in the day, 30, 40, 50 years ago, I think that was the case. But now we have a lot of toxicity within our environment. Our stresses are so different um, with all of that. So I don't think it's as simple as like, we're going to decide to make a baby and it's all going to be good. I think now that's why I think dealing with your, obviously the spine and making sure your nervous system and your organs and everything is functioning properly 
but then addressing your nutritional aspect of it, addressing your stressors. Are you getting enough sleep? All of those things and, and then managing expectations. That's, I mean, how many people have, I've known personally that they were told they can't conceive and then they adopt and then next thing you know, they're pregnant. There's a stress aspect of it too. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just very real with my patients. Maybe it's not the most, you know, professional, but I'm also, if you go back to labor, I, I tell my birth supporters, I was like, your job is to be the warrior, the protector, to make her environment to be calm and peaceful and parasympathetic dominant with it. So you don't drop a baby if you're being chased by a tiger. So if you're constantly being checked and monitored and told, oh my gosh, you're only this far along, and oh my gosh, if you're not this far in an hour, we need to intervene, that mom's not relaxed, that mom's not in parasympathetic dominance where, okay, now we can, you know, we can relax and our, it's safe for us to have a baby, those type of things. So is her whole entire pregnancy, I'm being chased by a tiger? And then her body can't even drop down into parasympathetics. Like that's, that's a thing too. So I think as a chiropractor, we, we have the unique ability because we see them so, so often. We build a relationship with them and we have the ability to encourage them and empower them that your body is smart. Your body knows what to do. I promise you, your body will tell you when it's time to push. Like there's, there's no, you know, like, Ooh, maybe it's going to tell me, maybe it's not like baby will come out when baby is ready. And I, I love telling my moms that throughout the normal cycle of labor, yes, there's going to be intensity and there's going to be waves of intensities. Notice how I didn't say there's going to be pain. There's going to be horrible contractions. No, it's, waves of intensity with every wave of intensity or with every push you're one step closer to welcoming your child into the world oh doesn't that just give you the warm and fuzzies versus oh my gosh i like baby's not out yet what's going to happen we need we need to support our moms in in allowing them to know that they're capable they're capable of birthing children within it um so that's also why I, I want to do preconception work with them is because we're starting to work on that mindset. We're managing them throughout their whole entire pregnancy throughout it. So not only spinally and, and throughout their pelvis, are they ready to give birth, but mentally they have a good mindset. Nutritionally, they're, they're likely going to recover better because they're not so depleted or so toxic. So that's kind of a roundabout way, way I guess, of answering that question, but I mean, I think it's a complex question with infertility that you need to, you really need to put the puzzle pieces together. It's not as simple, straightforward. Sometimes it's out of left field. I mean, there are people who are just EMF sensitive. So you t- turn off the Wi-Fi and some people can get pregnant. I, you know, it's, it's varying shades of gray, 100% on it. And it's not as straightforward. And that's, that's the point where, you know, you got to be the doctor, doctor. Yeah, I think you're right. I like your your analogy that you did um, about the wedding, but especially when you get a patient who maybe they're coming to you because they're already having um, pregnancy issues and they're maybe at 15, 20 weeks 
And yet you wish you could have seen them 15 to 20 weeks before they even got pregnant, but right. that ship has already sailed. So now we just have to go from where we are now. And could it have been better? Yeah, it could have, but why focus on that? We can't go there. Let's just exactly. start now and make the next however many weeks as good as we could possibly make them and try to make some changes um, before we do that. Because I've had patients where I acquired the patient that way. That first pregnancy went off and it was what it was. But then we worked on them before their second pregnancy. And the difference between the two pregnancies was like night and day. And so sometimes that's just the way that ends up going is that you, you have to use that in between time to make the exactly. other Exactly. And that's, that's the biggest thing is you want, if you're getting an infant in your practice, praise that mom for real, like wanting something different for her child. But the other thing is now is your opportunity to educate mom on, you know, Hey, when you're ne when you're pregnant next time type of thing, you know, we're, we're always like, we take care of pregnancy, all of those things. It's an education tool that you get the opportunity to, to see them throughout their next pregnancy, all of those type of things. Obviously we're always, you know, respective of what their wishes are with it. You're not going to, you know, that's a fast way to chase the patient off by, you know, <laughs> downgrading or judging their their choices within it that's i will say that is the biggest thing if you're working with preconception and pregnancy and all of that you respect whatever that mom decides to do if she wants an epidural if she wants a c-section if she wants to have the crunchiest at home birth you support that because like that's not for you to decide that's for them to decide your job is to give them information and make sure that their spine and their pelvis is optimized for baby. No, yeah. let me let me rephrase this too. You're not in like you are not working on baby in utero. You are working on optimizing mom right. with it. That is a big yeah. big thing that you need to communicate with your patients is that you are working on mom's pelvis. You're not working on baby within that 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 can get you in trouble with boards if you're allowing a lot of loose language of like I flip babies I turn babies like those type of things so be very conscious of your language that you're using and educating your patients as well of like I'm optimizing your pelvis within it yeah. And since you bring it up, uh, Webster is one of those things. Not that I want to teach anybody how to do Webster over a podcast, but if somebody already is doing Webster, how you communicate what you're doing, because you do, if you have a breech baby who flips and next thing you know, everybody's saying that you flip babies and you have to kind of redirect that. Be like, no, that's not what we did because people will immediately think, so you reached your hand inside and flipped the baby. No, that's not even close to what I did. It's more optimizing mom's pelvis and her yep. biomechanics so that she's mobile and there's exactly. versatility, and there's adaptability within the system is what we're doing. Exactly. And that, so if I have a patient come in and say, oh my gosh, you flipped my baby or baby's head down now. I'm going to be like, I didn't do that. Like you stop and have a conversation with them about, so we adjusted your pelvis to restore proper biomechanics and function to your pelvis which allowed your uterus to not have tension within it. Therefore, then baby was able to get in the proper position because you were optimized within it. And that's how you have that conversation within that. And 
You know, if you have a, a patient, love them. They run to their OB and be like, yep, yeah, so I'm a chiropractor. She flipped my baby. Like, please have that conversation yeah. with that OB, with that midwife. Like, invite them to coffee. Like, have a relationship <laughs> with them. Most of, most, you know, birth providers know what Webster's is and they're not any of those type of things. But also document, please, in your notes. Like, we discussed that I optimized, you know, mom's pelvis, blah, 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 those type of, of things to make sure that you're communicating or the best way to prevent that is when you're going to do Webster's or optimizing pelvis, send them home with a little blurb on a sheet, like a half sheet or something like that of this is what we did. Cause if they have questions or their, their birth provider talks to them about it, they can just hand over that paper that there's no miscommunications within that. And, you know, put your name on it, put your clinic number, you know, type of thing with it. That's, that's a, we always want to prevent misunderstandings before they kind of happen, if you can. But it's a great education tool as well because they can that half sheet of paper. Moms love to talk. They will go to mommy groups, those type of things. If someone has a similar story to them, they're like, "Oh, you got to go see my chiropractor. She's amazing. He's amazing. You know, this is what they can help you with. This or the other. Like, it'll sell itself." Yeah. Um, so switching gears just a little bit, let's move more towards like the adjustment of the infant. Um, one of the questions I get a lot has to do with, um, we'll say uh, infant atlas. So um, the question I get has to do with when you're adjusting an atlas on an infant, how do you know when you've done enough so that you don't do too much? So I think really what the question is, is to what extent are you trying to get an audible and a shift like we might feel in an adult? Is it okay just to use pressure and hold the pressure? So can you walk through a little bit about what an atlas adjustment on an infant probably should look like? So if you're looking at an infant who's a day old versus six months or a year, your pressure is going to be different. Your goal should never be to get an audible with, with adjusting within it. You're, you're going to be looking at like, what is what is the tension? You got to realize the baby doesn't have the musculature to fight through like an adult with it. So you could do sustained pressure. You could, you know, hold and give just the tiniest thrust, which please show what your thrust is going to be like on mom or dad, especially if they've never had any experience with chiropractic because they think what you're going to do to their precious little baby is what you do on an adult. And that's not so, you know, the what the pressure that you could tolerate on your eyelid or checking the ripeness of a tomato. It's not the healthiest analogy, but I'm using the pressure that I could hold a Pringles chip without breaking it. Like, again, not that I advocate for bad nutrition, but most people have had a chip, you know, in their life. So they, they can understand that. And everyone's breaking a chip before you're like, oh, a little aggressive with, with grabbing that. But that's, that's the beauty also of adjusting on mom, on dad, is they get to feel that, that pressure as well. Don't also after an adjustment, like, so if you do, you know, an adjustment on your, like on yourself, especially like upper cervical or, or sacrum or something like that, you know, in, infants go out the window when you need to adjust on them. If they're cool with adjusting on you, then you do that. If they're cool on mom, you do that. 
they're likely not going to be on a chair. They're not going to be in this, this great, perfect patient placement as much as we would love it. It doesn't really exist. And so if a child's upset or startled or something like that, please don't try and comfort them. Like give them back to mom, give them back to dad. That's their safe place within it. Um, please warn them beforehand. Hey, you know, little, little Johnny maybe started a little bit or, you know, that area is really tender. So he may, he's going to be probably agitated by that, but not like as soon as adjustment's done, I'm going to hand it back to you. You can go ahead and nurse right after um, comfort that child, like those type of things within it. Um, but back to an Atlas adjustment, I, depending on how big they are, small they are, those type of things, I'll use a pinky or an index finger, even a thumb on that. Sometimes it's a sustained pressure. Other times it's a little, a little thrust on them, but I'm never going for an audible. If you're thinking you're going to set this atlas like you do an adult or like someone who, you know, a big burly guy who's 250 pounds and is a linebacker. Oh my gosh. I, I would be horrified as a mom, you know, and I, I think of some of the big, big men that we have in chiropractic and how I think some moms would be like, Oh my gosh, you're so big. And like, maybe so tiny with it. So I don't get that a lot as, um, as a female, but you know, you, you just find the most specific contact for what you need to fix. If that's a pinky, if that's a thumb, then, then that's what you do. Or I mean, a pisiform over thumb or an index finger um, is so useful within it. We talk about in Gansa that sets us apart is that we are so specific on our angle, our contact, where our line of drive is. Those same principles in an adult apply to an infant, into a child. It's just smaller with it. So use, use those same principles and then just bring them down to a smaller one. You know, you may use a big sledgehammer on adult type of thing, but you're using a little like elf like hammer that they would use at the North Pole for an infant. So you're, you're just utilizing a different aspect of your body weight, your biomechanics, those type of things with it. Um, I think Dr. Claudia talks about it a lot of how prone adjusting is really good mm-hmm. for, for young children I think it's under age of five because the, the flexibility, the ability for the doctor to stabilize. The biggest thing is we don't want to do harm to a child or interrupt their growth centers or, you know, sprain, strain something within it because we did not have them in a proper position to stabilize them. I mean, yes, your thrust is very important, but what do we always talk about? Stabilize, stabilize, stabilize within it. So mm-hmm. that's, that's where you get to be the doctor, doctor within it. Um, but yeah, you trust, trust the system. You, you really can. And your goal is not to go for a home run. Your goal is to get the next visit within it. If you have a child who is just in an immense amount of pain, has a severe torticollis type of thing, are you going to go for broke on that first adjustment? Probably not. Your goal is to get them a little bit better, to see them for the next visit, build that rapport, build that trust within it. Because if you go for broke and that child gets worse or they they never come back in your office, 
you've not only lost a patient, but you've now lost the ability to impact that child's life for, for decades to come within it. So I encourage people, especially students, like look at the impact that you can have on a child's life from your care, from a developmental standpoint. Oh my gosh, if you have a child who is set behind because they're not crawling when they should or walking when they should, and then you come to your office and you adjust their spine and they start neurologically developing how they're supposed to because their nervous system is able to now adapt. Oh my gosh, you've changed their life completely. And I don't think we sit back and reflect that enough. I'm not saying like be on a power trip and ego about it, but I think really honor that adjustment that you're giving and the intent of your adjustment. Don't adjust someone with indifference. That adjustment, that one adjustment could be life, life changing to that child, to that patient. And you should feel deeply honored with every patient that you see, every adjustment that you give, because it truly can be life changing for people. Yeah, I've often said that your potential for doing good is directly proportional to your potential for doing harm. And I think that's why you have to recognize that if I can make a lot of good here, I can also do a lot of harm here. So you have to respect that process. And I think maybe it says the teacher in me, I think the skill that's the hardest to develop with infant adjusting is the skill of being very, very fast, but still being shallow. Because Mm -hmm. you could have a child with like, say, an atlas, and it feels really fixated for this little tiny baby to have a pretty profound fixation. You got to be fast to overcome that, but you can't let that speed turn into a deep amplitude because that won't work. And so developing that skill takes a lot of practice and you don't just suddenly have it. If you got nieces or nephews or friends who have babies, my gosh, just hold them. I promise you, you won't break them. That like, I, I came from a big family. So like, it's nothing for us to like hold babies all the time, this, that, or the other. So I'm just like, I see a baby and I'm like, here please bring me your baby. I'll take baby for a while, like, and just love on them. So I think that's the biggest thing I can, I can say to students is go, go hold babies, interact with babies. If you are scared to hold a baby, to interact with a child, go like you, that like take this opportunity as a a ghost shadow in a peds practice where the doctor, if they know that they will be like, here, hold this baby while I adjust mom. And you're like, oh, uh, uh, you know, with it. But you get more and more comfortable with it. And baby can sense that. Like we, we do, I think it's like 80% is like nonverbal for us. You know, we read facial expressions, all of that kind of stuff. Baby can't talk. And so baby doesn't know if you're a safe person or not. So they rely on what, what is mom's facial expression? What is mom's, um, nonverbal communication to them. So if you're really awkward and you're scared and all that type of stuff, children pick up on that like crazy. But if you're, it's funny because I will, I'll be out at like the mall or something like that. And I'll have kids run up to me because I just, I exude that like, I'm cool. Like come hang out with me type of thing. But it's like, I'll get down on their level. Like, what's your name? What's your favorite color? Like relate to kids. But if you have to move from infants to, you know, a five or six year old, like don't ignore your children in the office, like ask them questions, make it fun for them. Um, you know, if, if you have your face papers, your trash can now becomes a basket 
like they're you get to shoot your your hoops after you get adjustment you know a, a fist bump you did so great today like all of those things you're building a connection with those children that's the biggest thing is when we say in children you're you're building a relationship with them I can't tell you how many kids are, like your parents will be like we're here because you know their child is like they won't stop bugging me because they want to come in and see you and that's typically because they innately are like my body, like something's wrong and I need to go see you with it. So if, if you just like trust your kids innate, like they, they know they get it with it. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I, I see that. Yeah, I think that's good. Let's transition to like the ages five to like, say 12, because that's kind of a natural transition into that, that as you get into that age, now we have kids who can communicate with us. So we get over that barrier. But now we have kids that are up and walking around and actually being active and we start seeing problems, potential problems that we don't necessarily see in that infant stage. That infant stage has unique issues because of what they can and can't do. Now the five to 12s have unique issues because of what they can can do, but maybe shouldn't do. <laughs> and then things that they can do and, and they do often. But um, as you're getting more towards like, especially now, like eight, nine, 10, kids are already playing competitive sports. Um, and so you're going to have falls, you're going to have bumps, you're going to have things like that. Um, what special considerations do you have for that age group or what things do you really look for that you realize could be, could get a little tricky? So you need to know their personality. So if you have a child who is more of the daredevil, has no like concept of fear or not trying to do something, okay, I, I need to make sure that I'm asking mom and dad every visit or even asking him or her like, did you have fun adventures? Was there any, like, did you have any accidents or like anything like that? Like develop a word cue for them almost of like, did you have like, maybe like they don't, they don't consider like falling off of a swing or something, a fall. Like, you know, so you have to kind of read the child and understand what, like, did you have any owies? Like, is there any owies on you? Um, or was there anything that made you have an owie or something like they'll show you like a scraper bruise or they'll like point to something and be like, well, what happened? And then they'll tell you that's you're building twofold there. You're understanding how they kind of fell. And then you confirm with mom or dad with it. You know, that's where that comes with like the little fish. And then by the end of the trip, it was like this huge, massive whale type of thing. So you got to gauge a child's, you know, how, um, how accurate was this fall. But then you're also, what works for them? Please get them in a routine with it. If they, if you have like an adjust a pet or a stuffed animal that they really like, you can, they have like toy scopes now that you can purchase, you know, they're scoping one. So that way they understand, you know, treat them appropriately within their level, but falls are a big thing. How are they doing in school? Are they interacting well? Um, are they meeting their milestones? That's, that's a big thing. And milestones, um, I think there's a book called Ticklish. It's by, and I'll, she's a, she's a DC. I think it's like Dr. Jennifer. I can't remember her last name, but she's from, from Australia. And her book is based off of like milestones reached and those type of things, but it's from like a parent's perspective within it. So do they have retained reflexes? within it. Those are a big thing. So if I see um, a five-year-old who walks on their toes, automatically you should, we likely think an S2, an AS occiput. Do they have a retained Babinski's reflex? 
that could also like if something's not resolving spinally you're you're checking them and those type of things okay i need i need to check like do they have a retained palm regress or a rooting reflex or um a glant like those type of things i know we're not like we want to you know the orthopedics and neuros and all of those types of things aren't like the sexy thing to talk about like it's the adjusting that's what but they have their place and they have their relevancy within it how are you going to catch something and you know because there's a lot of like wait and see for milestones or development you know they'll you know little johnny is a little behind well next time their visits well that could be six months eight months down the road now this child is six or eight months behind within it so we see them more frequently so you know just be familiar like what are your words or like you know are you able to touch your toes make like make fun fun things about it can you touch your nose for me or like you know things that you can see your your milestones um with it like I, I have an exam sheet like when I do their re-exams or on a monthly basis or their three or six months I'll just be like yep 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 I'll ask mom about them and and go from there that's their due diligence there so you're you're taking out the milestones of the development within them then are they growing are they adapting are they sleeping well are they eating all of those things is like okay how is their how is their nervous system functioning how is their body developing and adapting within that um school school is a big thing with them um how are they interacting with others do they get super overwhelmed are they really fidgety this type or the other take it with a grain of salt too boys they fidget more if you could put if you could you know kindergarten first grade if you could throw them outside and like play tag and all of that kind of stuff and then bring them back with the with the girls in like second and third grade ish they would likely sit down more and they would have you know a better more even like language and words and all of that because their brains develop differently Dr. Michael Hall's course through ICPA was, was fantastic. I learned so much through that one about development in the in the brain and how it's different. And you need to take those into consideration with within practice with it. But traumas are a big thing. Oh my gosh, learning how to ride a bike or, you know, someone was mean to them on the playground. So what do they logically do? They shove them. Or, you know, hit, the, you know, kids will be kids at the, at the end of the day, no matter how much you're like, no, 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 don't do that. Oh, well, it happens. And so I think you, and hopefully by that point, you've known their spine for a while. So if, if you get the luxury of having them from infancy on, you kind of know what's abnormal, like this reading's really abnormal for them. Or, you know, what did their previous check to this one? Like, those are big things. And if you see all of a sudden, like Johnny's upper cervical is just like crazy off the charts compared, and he typically doesn't have that. Hey, Johnny, did you, what was your week like? Did you do anything exciting or fun? Like, did you have any falls or anything like that? Like those type of things. So keep like being detailed in your analysis. I think that's one of the best things about Gonson is that we have so many checks within our system that you're likely going to pick up regardless of age range, the, the abnormalities, the indications of where I need to be within that. But the, the big thing is their, their curves, their, you know, their pelvis, 
um, you know, all of all of those things, especially if they're they're always like sitting on the TV or what's their poor po- like is their posture really bad? Those we want to assess their curve. We're not trying to induce like you know what I mean. Like we're trying to optimize their spine, but if they're constantly on a phone, like we don't want that because you're you're messing up with their cervical curve um, to not have a lordosis. So part of that is also asking parents to to put your kids outside, let them go play in the dirt. <laughs> be kids mm-hmm. yeah and it seems like a lot of that that age group uh, a lot of them have seems like there's more uh, chronic illnesses uh, in that age group than when I first started in practice uh, and so for me that really drives home the point of trying to build them up means don't um, don't mix systems uh, and I think sometimes that kind of that's in the past that's kind of gone to the wayside that we think of not mixing systems when it comes to the a uh, 29-year-old who's got some kind of neurological disorder, but we forget it when we're talking about a young child who has an immune disorder, which is still neurology. So um, how important is that to you of of, stay, of really finding the subluxations and, and not mixing systems, but really trying to focus, especially since kids generally only have one or two problems. They don't, it's, it's, it's harder to fool yourself into needing to do a lot more. So I think it's a good guide, but anyway, I'll let you answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I typically don't mix systems on on them, um, especially when I'm first starting with them. I'm still learning their spine. I'm still learning their neurology. Um, wh- what do they need to adapt the best? And if you're adjusting two segments, three segments, four segments, or, or more, which one did it? Which one provided the best? Is it one of them? Is it two of them? Um you don't know that. And how do you know what's going to give the biggest impact unless you're taking detailed notes? Okay. I had a reading at, you know, C7, T8 and a right ilium. So, okay. Maybe, maybe I stay in their thoracics. But here, here's a good way to figure out, do I need to slow them down or speed them up? within that that's that's a good way to look at a child too is what are they needing are they needing to to become more in in their parasympathetics are they needing their sympathetics to be a little bit higher are they not sleeping well are they just going berserk and they they just can't sit still okay like you're clearly on the gas pedal here we need to tap the brakes within it so i think looking at it from a neurology standpoint and not necessarily a, I'm, I need to adjust X amount of bones, but that, I think that hones down the ability to pick the right one. And as a, as a young doc and as a student, you'll be like, well, which one's the major? That's for you to find out. And sometimes you're, we're wrong, you know, but that it's practice. And you do the best that you can with each patient to, to find the major with it. And, you know, I, I think on one of your previous podcasts, you, you were talking about, you know, if you, you were just more than one bone, did you find the major, you know, as, aspect of it. And, you know, some, sometimes you need to pick one and um, actually colic. Colic is a fantastic example. Sometimes it's an upper thoracic, sometimes it's an upper cervical, and sometimes it's both. You can't be on the gas pedal and the brake pedal at the exact same time. It doesn't work that way. So you need to fix fix the major symptom or not symptom system that needs the most care within it. And 
I think when you do less on a child, they function so much better. They get they they need more fine tuning than someone who is an adult who's had years and layers of stress and trauma and all of that to their their spine and their body. You know, they're yeah, they they have slips and they have falls and all of those type of things, but they don't have the stress that most adults do. At least I hope kids don't. I hope they can be kids <laughs> and and enjoy that. But I think they're more straightforward than than you think. They they will have more edema or swelling at that one area. They'll likely kind of scoot away from you and it's like, oh, that's tender. Like I don't really like that. And maybe that that mid thoracic is more of a compensation and that it's it's acting in that because of that or did they fall off the monkey bars and land in their middle back where okay does the trauma make sense for them to be in both systems is this a biomechanical issue because biomechanics will trump neurology within them you need to you need to address that for sure but going and adjusting every single scope reading that you have is not following the system within it. So you need to, you know, do a very thorough analysis. And if you're not sure, and you're really young, go ask an older doc too, within it. We have, that's the beauty of our, of our community, is that you have a wealth of knowledge at, you know, your fingertips, essentially, to reach out to a doc. I don't know a single doc who would refuse to help a young doctor in practice or a student or anything like that. We have a very blessed community that you can help each other out and you'll learn. I mean, I, there are tons of older docs who are like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Or they were like, oh my, they'd say one thing and I was like, oh my gosh, I just had the light bulb. I've been thinking about this for months or something like that. So take advantage of that. As a student, my gosh, go shadow, go, you know, go buy coffee with a doc early in the morning at seminar or something like that and just pick their brain. Like that's the yeah. easiest thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing about that particular population group that I've seen as a change over the last 20 years is that when I started in practice, when I would see a kid between the ages of five and 12, it often was because the parent would bring them in and they would say, um, well, we're noticing this, either something about the way they walk or something about the way they hold themselves, but the kid would not claim to have any pain, but then I might x-ray scope, I find the problem, I fix it, and the kid goes, oh, that's so much better, but they didn't even aware, weren't even aware they had a problem. Now I'm finding that a lot of kids come in actually complaining of pain more than they ever did before, um, and that includes even my own kids. <laughs> I've had my own kids being like, although it helps that they know that I will fix it, so they're willing to say it, but I had a thing with my daughter kept telling me, oh, my neck hurts, my neck hurts, so I'd, it was her atlas, I would adjust it, and then the next day or two, she's telling me her neck hurts. So I finally went in and I looked at her bed and I said, where did you get this pillow? And she said, oh, I stole it from mommy. It was my mo my wife's, um, my pillow made for her. And I'm like, that pillow is entirely too big for you. So I fixed her neck, gave her a different pillow, solved the problem. But even then I kept thinking back to it. And I was like, you know, it, it, that wasn't that long ago that kids really didn't come saying this hurts, that hurts. But now I get kids coming in and they're complaining because their backpack hurts. Or when I sit in the chair at school, my back hurts. And it seems like there's a lot more actual back pain complaints, which to a lot of parents is kind of weird because they'll say, I didn't know kids had back pain. Like they'll think they're not able to experience it. And so is, is that any kind of a transition or anything that you've had to, to deal with or talk with parents about? I think a lot of that is, are your kids like sitting in front of the TV? Is like, are they in really bad posture and sustained postures for a really, really long time within it? That's 
that's where I think a lot of, cause it, so we think of chronic pain as months and months. Well, the degeneration process actually starts within four weeks of it. So are you getting nociceptors to be more prevalent because it's been a couple months for them now? Is it because there is more of a toxicity with like on a cellular level with the, the children now that there's less adaptability or less reserve that they have to kind of adapt within their day-to-day life? I mean, if you look at children nowadays, they they spend so much time in in chairs sitting at school and then they go home and they study and then their backpack weighs how much. So they're trying to compensate for those type of things where, I mean, my gosh, even when I was growing up, like you, you came home and you went outside and played on the playground or you played on your swing set or you just, you know, got into mischief in a way, <laughs> um, you know, but you know, they were so much more active within it. So that would be my thoughts on it of why we're experiencing more pain is I think that they're in such sustained positions for so long that you're accelerating those nociceptors to, to have that. And I mean, you know, if you've been studying or slaving away for, I mean, students could probably relate to that. You're cramming for that exam for hours on end. And then you like come up from like, you know, being hunched over, looking at your stuff and you're like, oh my gosh, my upper back, my neck, all of those things. And I don't think we translate that to a kid looking at a phone all the time or even reading a book. You know, how many kids have their head cranked way forward because they have a pillow behind their head and they're laying down, you know, kids sleep in awkward positions. My gosh, my (laughs) some of my friends' kids or like my niece or nephew. And I was like, how is this comfortable for you? Like my poor spine hurts for you when, you know, when they're out sleeping. Um, the big thing too is like when they're traveling for, for long distances, I see this all the time. They're like, oh, my kid just completely passed out in their, you know, in their car seat or their anything like that. And their head is like to their shoulder. And it's like, well, yeah, that kid's probably going to experience pain. And, and maybe it's an intuition thing too that, you know, because I think parents ask like, are you in pain? Does it hurt? So maybe they're even kind of training on that aspect of it where maybe 20, 30 years ago, they were more like, you're fine, you know, type of thing. We don't, we weren't so fixated on pain maybe per se with it. That would, that would kind of be my, my thoughts on, on the chronicity of even that age range, having more, identifying more with pain. I think that's probably right. Cause it's true. I would come home from school and then it was like, let's go play more sports. Let's go play. Let's do stuff. And you're right. They, they tend to stay in, uh, whether it's video games or more studying. I think the school day has been lengthened as well from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So they're just spending more hours in class anyway. Um, I think you're right. I think all that stuff contributes to it. And that really what they need is just joints were made to move. We've got to make a move. We definitely are. <laughs> So, well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I think we covered a lot of stuff in an hour. So thank you so yeah, much. I appreciate you being here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Franz Lubers for joining me today. I trust you learned something valuable to help build your confidence should you choose to see this very special patient population. With the coming new year, we have some new opportunities opening up for how we do this podcast that should allow for some innovative ways to bring you more education. So we'll be talking about that more in the next few weeks. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.